You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles. The projectionist has smicha. Hi, I'm here with Yitzhak Olakowski, and today we're actually going back to a place that Yitzchok, it didn't really shape or form you in any way other than perhaps what you saw. What? Well, I lived there. It, what? I, 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 had, I had a few kids there that were born there. Okay, right. All right. Yes, you were definitely a Richmond person for a while, and you had your children there. But you, you, you weren't the son of the South like I was. Now, again, I always tell people I'm more from Southern Poland than I am from the Southern part of the United States, having been raised in a European home than speaking Yiddish growing up. But I definitely was exposed to much of what it's like to live in the South, um, having gone through, although it was a Hebrew day school, but uh, a curriculum that was demanded by the state of Tennessee. um, And just in general, uh, driving my bike around neighborhoods of the South, knowing what sort of city I lived in uh, and the uniqueness of what it was to, to, and how the South was so different than the rest of the United States, and nothing like really Yitzchak, the, the, and this is really part of what we want to talk about today, uh, the version of the South that the Hollywood and a lot of the television shows were projecting. I remember watching uh, Andy, the Andy Griffith show and noting to myself, well, you know, Andy Griffith seems to have a Southern accent, but I, I don't think Don Knotts does. That's, the, that's not the way people in the South talk. And B definitely didn't talk that way. And neither did Floyd. So, so I think, you know, besides not getting the accents, there was also, um, I always felt uh, an over-exaggeration, uh, a, a, a sense of seeing the South as a number of just, the Southerners were grotesque losers that basically needed to be made fun of, even though, despite Gone with the Wind and other films that sort of lionized the old great South, I think more often than not, um, whether it was Rock Hudson and Pillow Talk or, or, or anything like that, being a Southerner usually meant sometimes sly, um, untrustworthy, but most of the time foolish and backward um, in, in many ways. So by, we, we, tonight we want to talk about two films that really emphasize what Southern life was about. Uh, one comedic, the other I would call a black comedy uh, with very important religious undertones and in fact, extremely serious ones about the nature of Catholic Christianity and how it differs perhaps, if we can talk about it, from many principles that we hold dear. So you'd say, let's start with the lighter side of the South in a film that um, you uh, felt had some significance for you and your family. So go ahead. Well, I, I don't know how much significance, but it's remembered uh, seeing this movie many years ago, and I watched it now. It's in the public domain, and it's the the thing that's most curious about it is that a lot of people are familiar with the character from the Looney Tune cartoons called uh, Foghorn Leghorn. Which was the, the you know the big rooster everybody knows uh, with the southern accent and he's like you know, I declare you you know and uh, he's always you know ha- he has all these very exaggerated mannerisms uh, and what most people don't know is that that character was actually a parody 
of another character, a radio character from the Fred Allen show, which was, I know uh, my Baba Allah Sholem was a big fan of Fred Allen. She's, you know, there was, uh, you know, this, this uh, uh, feud supposedly between between Fred Allen and uh, Jack Benny uh, throughout the years, and she was she was staunchly in Fred Allen's team, uh, my Baba. But uh, in any event, one of the recurring characters on the show was Senator Beauregard Claghorn, and the Foghorn Leghorn character that again became much more famous was really a parody uh as many you know we know many cartoon characters like like we mentioned before how top cat was phil silvers and and uh you know the simpsons made a whole reference to that in one episode of how how cartoons are just rip-offs of uh, uh, you know, of uh, uh, parodies of of other was that was definitely true for the Warner Brothers cartoons. I mean, the Warner Brothers cartoons who introduced Foghorn Leghorn. They um, uh, oh, many, first of all, even their Porky Pig was a ripoff of a Disney pig that they had sort of like you know uh, boulderized, so to speak. Um, and Daffy, although it doesn't really sound like Donald was also basically you know you know sort of ripping them up but you're right they, they, they you know warner brothers uh um did great imitations of course they had mel blank and other incredible voice artists i think mel blank was the voice for uh for uh foghorn leghorn i believe so um so you definitely and, and mel blank often would would appear on the uh on uh, yes. Jack Benny, he'd appear on the Jack Benny. But I think one of the funniest bits that I'd ever seen with Jack Benny, I, it just cracks me up every time I see him. You know, uh, Mel Blanc shows up and he says, "So, oh, I remember you. We, you know, we went to high school together in Waukegan, and, uh, and you know, you still play that fiddle, uh, you know." And he's like, "You know, what, what are you doing with your life?" So then Jack Benny tells Mel Blank, I'm the voice of Porky Pig. And he, <laughs> and he cracks himself up. He, you know, and, you know, <laughs> Jack Benny is always so, you know, deadpan and everything. But look, I, look, I want to tell you something. Even though your grandmother is a big Fred Allen fan, Fred Allen was not able, let's be honest, to make the jump to television or a film that Jack Benny was able to. Fred Allen, right? I mean, you, you see him on What's My Line. Uh, but he wasn't. Yeah. Uh, he Fred wasn't. Allen is a big Balkishran. And Fred Allen is quick. Um, he's he's caustic. Uh, he can, he, he, he's he's well, he's not Don Rickles, but he can definitely uh, use his, his sharp wit to sort of almost eviscerate someone um, in terms of, you know, what he was about. But but I don't believe he was he was able to have that type of chain that you'd want to watch him and see him. Uh, in that way, and and you said let's let's be honest. A lot of these the radio programs, just like podcasts, uh, the reason why they were hits were in large part due to these ancillary characters that you wanted to hear from, uh, and people that could do interesting voices and and and, and mimic things that were going on. And and as you said, the uh, Senator Claghorn was a typical Southern. And I don't know, clearly a sort of uh, very exaggerated, very, very exaggerated uh, Southern caricature, but but lovable and amiable, you know, wasn't 
he wasn't presented as some kind of, uh, certainly not a, in a negative, sleazy way at all. It, very lovable, but, uh, so, sir, but somewhat of a dunce, somewhat of a... So really, uh, on the so on the cusp of, you know, a television that still not yet made it, but clearly the idea of using radio for mining radio programs for film this film in 19 was 1947 decided to to put take that Beauregard, Senator Beauregard a claghorn who was so popular on the Fred Allen show in the hope they could build a whole film around that character and that's yeah, the yeah, film this, again this is something they've done you know Lum and Abner another southern uh, caricature type of a show uh, they were there was a whole series of Lum and Abner movies that I I get a kick out of those. I, again, I haven't seen them in a while, but I, I, they're really really out there, really far out movies. The the Lum and Abner. I mean, like the like the show was. You know, Lum and Abner was in a way a forerunner to uh, shows like Green Acres and and Andy Griffith, but it was uh, again much more exaggerated. Mm-hmm. So you're uh, so you're thinking that maybe it's a joke, son was floated as maybe a possible series of films that would be, um, you know, like, like, like we talked about Andy Hardy and Dr. Kildare or whatever. So this was also, they were maybe wondering if this film would, you know, uh, would give enough box office and interest that they could somehow, you know, Kenny Delmar. Now, was Kenny Delmar the, ra- you're not sure if he was the radio voice or he was the radio voice. I think he was, you know, mm-hmm. it sounds just the same and it's not. Uh-huh. And Kenny Delmar, you know, his history, I mean, again, if you look at his filmography and, 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 you know, if you go to the IMDb uh, website, you see that he, he voice, <laughs> he, he did a lot of voice work. Uh, that was one of the things that he was and you know, in, uh, in, in underdog and uh, <laughs> many other sorts of uh, cartoons that were, uh, that allowed him to be this. I think he was the narrator on Tennessee Tuxedo, which is one of my favorite cartoons. Although again, you know, Don Adams did not, I don't know why he was called Tennessee Tuxedo, Don Adams. This is a guy, this was Maxwell Smart. You know, this is a, for Inspector Gadget. That's who Tennessee Tuxedo was. You know, n- not too much Tennessee there, but Claghorn was sort of like an all-encompassing Southerner, right? It was Texas, yeah. New York, Texas, right? I'm sorry, Texas, uh, North Carolina, Tennessee, all together uh, in some fictional Southern place. So I, I guess the the plot isn't that important, but it somehow um, they're worried about Claghorn uh, winning re-election. Is that what's going on? Is that the basic well, plot of the film? It wasn't even a re-election. He was actually running against some sort of a uh, carpetbagger senator who had been there for a long time. They had asked him to give a speech uh, in support of him. They offered him some money. He was having, excuse me, (coughs) he was having some money problems. And they offered him in the beginning of the movie some money to give a speech for for this, you know, carpetbagger senator who was really just an empty suit, really uh, just a puppet to really corrupt uh, people who, uh, you know, kind of along the lines of what we were talking about with uh, and Wilson, the the kind of bosses that that ran politics in New Jersey in, in the in the turn of the century. <coughs> this is how it was presented that this guy who 
kind of slept through his. So basically, they basically want him to run against. They, he gets pushed in to run against his wife, right? Well, his his wife wants to run against this carpetbagger. She's pushed to run against the carpetbagger, and then the carpetbagger's campaign. And and he had some money issues, and and uh, the same money that they both made on the mint julep farm. Uh, they both spent, so they had to make up that money, and they came up with an idea that if he would run against uh, his wife, it would split the ticket and get and guarantee that the the uh, incumbent would win again. So therefore, uh, the the incumbent gave him, you know, twice as much money as he needed in order to run against his wife. And then he realized, you know, he can't just sell out like this. He's going to actually be a viable candidate which leads him to being kidnapped and uh, his life being threatened. So it's a, 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 a it, it's a silly movie, but it, it has a very serious uh, things. But one, one of the scenes when the, his wife is nominated by the daughters of Dixie <coughs> to, um, to, to run, you know, they're presenting themselves very much uh, feminist um, you know, uh, first wave feminists, you know, uh, and part of the old first wave feminism was prohibition. So they were recommending that uh, maybe we should bring prohibition back. This was, you know, maybe about 15 years after prohibition end, ended. And uh, then what happened was that unwittingly, there was a little boy who was uh, collecting for the newspaper uh, who helped him put together the the punch, and he didn't realize what he thought was grape juice was all kinds of alcohol. He made some very strong drink, and these women who all said, you know, they would never let alcohol pass their lips, uh, all got very drunk and they were giggling, and it was it was a very funny scene. So it's uh, yeah. So basically, the you know you know it's it does talk a little bit about the usual tropes of what American politics had become, right? Dirty, underhanded stuff, backroom things. Um, it sort of gives a little bit of a sort of a Mr. Smith goes to Washington type of idealism, right? Does, 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 when he wants to win, he wants to win for the right reasons, or is it just that yes. he's... Uh, for, for the right reasons, yeah. So they, so they do, you know, uh, uh, Beauregard does have some positivity and uh, he's a very lovable positive character even and he's a foil to his wife like one of the uh you know one of the members of the cast who plays his daughter is june lockhart uh a young june lockhart we usually we're used to her being a mother in lost in space and lassie and here she's you know a young young woman you know get you know at marrying age I guess this is what she did before she wound up lost in space, or, or <laughs> See, and, 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 whatever it is. Right, and and, did and, she, and and does she present herself with somewhat of a southern accent in the film? She does, uh, and and she does a fairly good job with it. It's, it doesn't sound that fake. Um, but the I remember her, I remember her as a southern character um, when B. Bernadette, uh, B. Benaderet, uh passed away. And or was very very sick with cancer, and couldn't and could not continue in the petticoat junction role. Um, you know, she was the head of the Shady Rest Hotel, and they brought in after she died. They brought in June Lockhart, 
Um, yeah, I remember. I, I I know what you're talking about now. Yeah, yeah that's right, correct. right. And she, I remember. Oh, that's oh, there she's from Austin Space, and now she is here on, uh, she's here on um, on Petticoat Junction. And um, again, again, I always thought Hooterville was somewhere in the south. I don't know. Yeah. Seems to me, it seems to me Hooterville had to be somewhere in the south. But once again, besides um, Pat Buttram a clear Southern character, Mr. Haney right. from, right. Uh, from Green Acres. I, I really was always disappointed, you know, with this, what was, you know, Ebb was a little bit of a Southerner from Green Acres in generally Hollywood um, television uh, programs. It doesn't make a difference. It's sort of like I was talking about national velvet a couple of weeks ago. The South is an idea, a concept of, of, of Hicks, of hustlers, of backwardness, something to be a punchline for. It really doesn't make a difference. One or two people can hit the Southern accent. The others can sort of just fake it and, and limp along with it. But it wasn't like real truths about what was going on. And we know, Yitzchak, that the politics that were really happening in the 1940s and 50s in the South were toxic and difficult and really in many ways shaped uh, were, were the catalyst for the, uh, f- the pushback that created the civil rights movement. So really, the, you know, the film that you're talking about is really, is really playing around in an area that, 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 had, that not only did it have potential for, for, for real exploration, and I would say a film, an Academy Award winning film that you might not have seen, which is called All the King's Men with Broderick mm-hmm. Crawford. Mm-hmm. is about based on you know uh you know the based on uh the louisiana governor um huey uh p long and that is a that is a film that i think is more true to the southern mentality i'm not sure if they got the ambiance correct but that that's a film about how the south was really a place not just for carpetbaggers for the political machine for people that that wanted to do the right thing but in some ways were constrained by uh, the limitations of, of, of the prejudices of the people around them and of the way things have always been done around here. The same sort of things that I think underlie yes. why the that's South couldn't I, change. That's why I experienced as, as, as a rub in, in the South. Was <laughs> the, the pushback was, which I guess that, that happens everywhere, but the, the real pushback, of, you know, you're trying to change things as they've been done you know, all, all these years, you know, who are you to change? To change I, I think one of the things that people realize, you know, they, they, when they talk about, oh, the Southern accent, oh, it's so cute. There is a, a commonality that, link, you know, people who study, uh, uh, um, I'm not sure exactly what it's called, but how uh, dialects and, and languages, and they'll tell you that there is a great, what is it called? linguistics yeah well i know what linguistics is what i mean is that part of that but people will tell you that the way southerners pronounce things is actually closer to the way the old english pronunciation in england is um or actually how it was meaning the english uh, accent changed over the years people often wonder when did when did the Americans lose the English accent? And it's what I heard was it's the opposite that England made up a new accent, and that that the the American accents are more the original. And, and but but the southerner the southern accent is closer to the original accent of people spoken the way people spoke in England, and we in know. The- 
again, I, I don't understand it exactly, but what I do know is men, in the mentality was much more similar. The idea that, you know, the gentry, the, the sense of aristocracy, um, the way things happen, England, and this, that's part of the reason why during the, uh, the Civil War, of course, despite the fact that slavery had been outlawed by England, way before the United States did, England was doing a tremendous amount of commerce with the southern states, as you know. Right. And, um, and, and, and as the war was beginning, despite the fact, again, that, again, Britain was clearly anti-slavery, but they really felt an affinity to uh, persons from the South. Um, and, and again, as you know, Virginia, which is where you were from, was considered, I think at one time had a nickname as uh, the birthplace of presidents, isn't it called that or something like that? Yeah, there, there were more, I think, even still to today, there were more presidents that were born in Virginia than, than in any other state. Right. And, and we know part of the reason that Washington, D.C. was chosen as the capital was to somehow assuage Southern fears of everything being centered in the North. So, you know, I was just in Baltimore, believe me, Baltimore, uh, Baltimore, many areas just there out of sight of Baltimore, you could, you could think that you were in Mississippi some places. Um, so, you know, the South you know, was- What I was saying about June Lockhart's character is she, she really loves her father and she's kind of, you know, she sees her mother as, as not showing proper respect to her father, that her father is someone who deserves respect, even though the, the the mother character is much more put together and 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 seems like someone probably who deserves more respect, and it's certainly a theme that they bring up there of how you know the the other uh, Senator Lee who they were running against, he said his his backers said there's no way that you could beat a woman because in the South a woman is an institution, you know you can't. You know, if 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 a woman runs, she's guaranteed to win, and that was the only way. You know, to kind of uh, split up the vote again was to have her own husband run against her. Uh, but and so June Lockhart was constantly, you know, giving her mother a bit of a hard time. Like, why why do you treat dad so poorly? Maybe if you were a little bit nicer to him, things things would be a little bit better. And in the oh. end, you know, she she kind of learns that lesson too. So it's uh. Well, yeah, and remember, she is June Lockhart was an unknown. We know her from our perspective because we are geeks from the sixties, seventies, eighties, and nineties, or wherever you're from. But the point is, is that but but Una Merkel, who plays uh, her mother, was actually probably the biggest name on that uh, on the playlist of who was in that film. She, of course, was part of Hollywood's golden golden era. Um, she had been, uh, I think she'd been, she'd been in a number of silent films, and she's actually the closest to a Southerner in this whole movie. Uh, she, she was born in Covington, Kentucky, which is basically Cincinnati. I don't know if you know that. It's basically a suburb of Cincinnati, but she grew up in the South. Uh, so I would assume she was able to get the Southern accent pretty, 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 pretty spot on. Um, and, uh, you know, I think Una Merkel, um, you know, I guess she has to play sort of the character that needs to learn her lesson, as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, it was Kenny Delmar, who plays uh, Beauregard. He sort of, does, does he change at all? Does he go through any growth other than discovering some sort of um, um, sense of American uh, integrity? Or do you think he's basically the same 
fellow the whole time. Uh, yeah, no, he he basically the same throughout most of the movie. You know, with the with the exception of that, you know, earlier in the film he was. It, it, it's strange because at the beginning of the film, the whole thing was that he would not sell out, and then he kind of sells out because, out of desperation, and then he regrets that that he you know so there is a slight it's not really a character arc because he he really just returns it's more almost really a a a full circle that you know he realized that he he was mistaken uh, in his thought that you know he could he could sell out in order to to just uh because of his financial woes and and the, the interesting thing you know and this is something people been commenting on the Simpsons a lot recently is that, you know, he lives in this big, beautiful, you know, estate and yet he, he has all these financial problems and uh, which is on one hand, it is realistic. You know, I mean, I remember, you know, going, going to Yeshiva in Queens with a lot of people from great neck and, you know, the, the, uh, the, the rest of Shiva would often mention that, you know, there are people in great neck in the big mansions who, who are on Tom Shabbos because, you know they're they're trying to keep up with the Joneses or or the Parnushes or whoever it is, and they uh, and they really can't. And so this was also I think part of what what he was experiencing was that you know trying to maintain this vision, which I, I think is also very much a southern, very much so. Movie. The South, yeah, and there was this idea of you know. Right. As much as we sometimes see, you know, the the Appalachia or everybody's on uh, welfare and living out of, uh, you know, tin, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, little houses made out of tin or boxes, uh, there was really this idea of the South, especially after the Civil War, that they were too proud, uh, that they wouldn't, they wouldn't, uh, you know, take handouts. Um, they didn't want to be treated as something less, and sort of not really, um, perhaps even owning up. To the humbling that history had given them, I think that was part of the the tragic aspect of the South. Um, and in many ways, I think that's the reason why so many people are fascinated by it, because you know you have you know an old Southern Gothic mansion or something like that that's in disrepair. Once again, a very f- favorite trope of of Hollywood about what you know what the South is like. And um, I think that uh, you know well, one I'm of the things about the alligator people. It's another movie that I think captures the South much more. I already gave, I already did my movies. So you already not- did your movies. I will say, however, that just you know that this film does feature, as when I look on the IMDb page, uh, the dog that I praised up Adleva Shamayim. You might remember in our National Velvet show when I said the horse I wasn't so crazy about, but the dog was great. That dog was actually Daisy, who made a career in the Blondie uh, films with Penny Singleton. I don't, right. yeah, and, um, yes. you know, and those films, which, you know, we talked about serials, and those are sort of like a bargain basement, uh, Andy Hardy film, but based again from the, uh, the long running um, cartoon strip the, uh, the, uh, in, in the newspaper, of course, Blondie and Dagwood. And uh, yeah, I've seen a number of them. The acting is terrible. Yeah. I mean, the acting is I mean, terrible. They're, they're, what? But, they're but they're a lot of fun. Right. And Daisy is great in all of them. I mean, she was, you know, uh, I don't know if Daisy was a he or a she, but that dog, that dog could steal any scene. And, uh, you know, Daisy is the is the Claghorn's dog as well. Right. In right. This, 
<laughs> so, in fact, she gets billing because everybody knew about Daisy. She was such a superstar. She lived to be quite old. She actually lived, she lived, I think, about um, almost 20 years. So she was really a, a really a canine superstar. Um, so def, it's, it's, it might be worth your hour and hopefully get a couple of chuckles and you get a sense of what the South sense, the Hollywood sense of the South was. Um, here's a little bit of a hook. Uh, Una Merkel, of course, was uh, had a bit role in a, a film that I think was in, in many ways broke the genre of what the detective film was about. In other words, it wasn't necessarily like Philo Vance or you know solving the crime or Mr. Moto or Charlie Chan. Um, the adapt the adaptation of what was considered like one of the best uh, detective stories that were written in the 20th century, Dashiell Hammett's *The Maltese Falcon*, uh, was uh, directed, and I think uh, the I think the screenwriter uh, who had adapted it was John Huston the son of a very important Hollywood actor who in the silent films in the 1920s was a very impressive leading man. Um, and Walter Houston's son, John, um, you know, learned from his father, learned from uh, the area around him and cast Una Merkel as Sam Spade's secretary in the Maltese Falcon. Of course, she was a very striking woman. I don't know. And uh, that was part of the reason why, you know, the secretary who has, you know, ideas on the boss. Uh, and of course, the reason why the Maltese Falcon is so interesting is because, you know, it's not so much about solving the crime. It's really about the character study and the trauma that goes on between all of the main characters, especially Spade himself. Um, and how the the plot is really secondary to what it says about people, about who they are. And I think this is part of what Houston did. Um, Houston's films were from the Maltese Falcon and on. Not all of them were super classics, but they all dealt, I think, with and I've talked about with you about what I think is one of the greatest films about greed, the treasure of the Sierra Madre. And Houston, as I've mentioned, in, when I talked about that film with you, um, was uh, very, very uh, adept at his use of uh, actual locations. Uh, the treasure of Sierra Madre was made in Mexico. And um, the, the use of Tampico and other spots, I think I've talked about how, how wonderful Houston was able to integrate them. Of course, they had to shoot many scenes on the Hollywood lot that weren't able to be done. Um, but Houston was, again, a character into outsider characters. He also, in his films, uh, uh, made incredible use of locations of actual locations, giving a person a sense that he was being transported to a certain place. Both of those things are on display in this film, which I think is probably in many ways, um, along with a film that came out uh, at a, a couple of years earlier, Deliverance, two films that Hollywood made that I think come very close to at least capturing some truths about the South, even though they are both in a way, horror stories of the South. Now, Deliverance, maybe we'll deal with on a different time. The film I want to talk about is John Huston's Wise Blood from 1979. Uh, it is a film that 
is probably one of the most uh, um, um, fealty. It has the greatest fealty to its source of almost any film I've seen. Um, now, again, I probably you could probably dump the Harry Potter films in there as well because of the millions of of of, of readers who are expecting to see all the same scenes that J. Cal Rowling put on page. Here we're talking about a book that was written in 1952. Uh, it was probably being developed for a number of years beforehand by Mary Flannery O'Connor, known as Flannery O'Connor, a, 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 a girl from uh, a young woman from Midgenville, uh, uh, Georgia. And it was a, she was a Catholic in a Baptist uh, uh, environment. And the book has become an American classic. Uh, it's a required reading in, 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 in many, many uh, high schools and in uh, many uh, colleges. It's considered, in a way, uh, essential for understanding how Catholicism can uh, survive and continue and meet the challenges of their skeptics. Um, I have to tell you, again, I before, you know, after I saw the film, I went back to the source material and I, I and I, I did a little bit of a deep dive into Flannery O'Connor and, and, and her importance. Um, you know, she is a, 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 a writer that uses the South, Yitzchak, and all the stuff that the baggage about it to treat the South as sort of like the wounded mortal who needs salvation, but bristles against it. We know although it was not really Catholicism that was uh, dominant in the South. We know the South was drenched with Christian ideology, with Southern Baptist preachers who preached a very strong um, uh, fire and brimstone type of religion. Besides the Baptists and Methodists and others that circulated in the South, the South was also the, the, really the, the basis of you know of of what we call revivalist religions of of religions that were not necessarily based specifically in Protestantism, but were sort of what we call um, the religions of evangelicals. We see them in the South, the mega churches that have developed from out of there. So this was the area that Flannery O'Connor uh, was was working with. And, and, and part of what she creates this character uh, of someone who is the, a child of a revivalist uh, Baptist over-the-top preacher who's played in flashbacks by Houston. Uh, and she gives him a sort of a, 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 a androgynous sort of name, Hazel Motes, right? A moat, almost like a speck of what he feels like, because that's what his... That is what his uh, his grandfather's made him feel like. His grandfather uh, seems to have been a traveling preacher or uh, an itinerant one, and he has been raised uh, hearing about Jesus, hearing about salvation. He comes back in, 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 in uh, Flannery O'Connor's book. He seems to have been a World War II veteran, having seen the horrors of war. This film that was made in 1979, he's seemingly coming back from the Vietnam War. And uh, he throws his his army uh, uniform in the trash, cashes the big army check that he got, 
seemingly because he was wounded in some way, although the, the film and the book don't really uh, expand on that, but he gives him, you know, without, you know, really in sort of strange way, an unending amount of money, which I'm not sure why, that he spends throughout the film in the strangest possible manner. What he ends up doing is moving to a mid-sized city. In the film, it's Macon, Georgia. Uh, it was filmed entirely in Macon, Georgia. And uh, this is where the film really you know, came to life for me, because although I was raised in Memphis, Tennessee, the areas of Memphis that I was raised in look you know, hauntingly similar uh, to the downtown areas and the areas that, that are, are in Macon, Georgia, that, that uh, Houston highlights. Um, he uh, ends up in this uh, city in Macon, um, um, basically deciding to at first to live a life of debauchery with a prostitute, but then he finds himself beyond his control, becoming a preacher. But what sort of preacher is he? He's a preacher who preaches against Christ. He preaches against Jesus. He, it's a, he calls it the Church of Christ without Christ. So in other words, Jesus is there, but not there, and that there's no such thing as sin, and there's no such thing as the resurrection, there's no such thing as the, the world to come, there's no such thing as, 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 being, as being guilty. Um, well, you would seem you don't have to say anything, but yet he preaches it, and he screams it. And the actor that plays Hazel is Brad DeRiff, who uh, had an Academy Award nomination for playing Billy Bibbit in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, but then really made a career of playing, you know, very much erratic, creepy people. Um, he, you know, he was, uh, and, and if you look at the films that he's played, most of the people he's played have been very um, violent, uh, upsetting type of characters, Brad DeRiff. Um, he, in, in one of the, one of his best roles, if you can catch it, is in an episode of The X-Files, where he plays uh, um, Lou, uh, some Boggs, who is uh, Lou, some, I forgot, a double name Boggs, who somehow has some sort of um, uh, extrasensory perceptive powers that, that somehow can, you know, that can that crack Scully. Uh, a very uh, effective performance there, real creepy. But in this film, he plays a person in pain, a person who, despite himself, finds himself preaching, preaching against God. And uh, and yet he is attracted to other preachers um, and other people who are, who are actually supposedly his opposite number. Um, there is a uh, Harry Dean Stanton, who you might know uh, is a, a, a great character actor who's been in a number of wonderful films um, and uh, plays a preacher who uh, wanted to blind himself and pretends that he's blind the idea being that to really um connect to god to really get beatification you need to suffer and you need to take away the senses of this world again a very much a catholic perspective it's not the protestant perspective but it's a perspective of uh, of a radicalism that the only way you could ever become beyond is to actually become one with the pain and suffering of Jesus. We're not talking, we're talking about the ancient ideas, you know, not a flagellation, the ideas of sainthood being achieved by actually living a life of martyrdom where you actually go together with, with Jesus completely. There is a, a preacher who, who 
who professes himself to be that. And Hazel finds himself connected to it. He exposes him as a fraud, at least for himself, but yet he's drawn to that idea. So as much as he's saying, I don't believe, he isn't just a cold atheist. Despite himself, and despite everything that he's saying, as Shakespeare says, methinks he does protest too much. Um, there's a, a, a number of other side characters. There's the preacher's uh, nubile teenage daughter, who um, it's clear uh, is very much aroused just by the physical presence of uh, of Hazel's character. And in fact, throughout the film, Hazel, it, 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 despite his sort of otherworldly looks, his passion and his intensity is a big turn on for the women. The women seem to like it. And again, part of what this shows you, and I think this is reflective even in the original text of, of O'Connor's book, is that the line of demarcation between sensuality and religious ecstasy is very thin. And then we find that these two things are are somehow melded together. Um, another theme that comes up in the in the and, and it's a very somewhat episodic uh, movie is the the love of 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 a car. You know, the uh, uh, Hazel goes to a um, like the worst sort of used car lot and buys sort of a flashy looking twenty uh, five year old vehicle. That he that he's at the top of his lungs, he screams is a great car and this is a great car, despite what all the uh, the garage mechanics are telling him. And he believes this car is his, is his escape. And watching it, I realized that this is really, in many ways, uh, the way O'Connor and Houston were talking about uh, what America's, as you know, uh, love affair with the automobile and this idea that if a man has a car, uh, you know, th this could be his 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 Aranakodesh to salvation. Um, and you know, he, he with with religious fervor, he's he talks about like as if this car is the is the Eskalos Hashkina uh, that he that he's part of. The, all the time, in fact, of course, denying that there is anything spiritual and that um, he is a grotesque. The characters around him. Uh, I mentioned two of them. There's another character who who is an 18 year old boy who just is looking for friends, who's finding even a southern city, a genteel southern city doesn't really connect. He he feels a disconnect to, to humanity. Um, there is a, a pygmy uh, uh, that's found in a museum in in, 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 the, in in the in the town near the zoo. That is somehow uh, they break into the to the to this museum to capture this pygmy, uh, I, a totem, which is somehow the Antichrist figure. The idea that there is somehow a being that that represents from some primal world that they could somehow connect to and worship, um, and you know all of this is really stitched together uh, and surrounded with what I thought was really true Southern figures. Um, and, and Houston wants the film to be populated by actual characters who are non-actors who show up in Macon. Um, and, you know, Houston enjoyed using them. He doesn't necessarily give them big parts to say, 
but you really believe you're in the South. What's strange to Yitzhak, though, is that the film, although the source material is 1952, the film is clearly with interstate highways and other, uh, other things around, it's clearly in the late 70s that the film is showing, and yet the characters are acting as if they're in some incredible Southern Gothic drama, at least the main characters are. And, and it, it, it's somewhat off-putting, uh, but I think part of it, it really, I think it really um, illustrates how the South perhaps has not really grown up, despite the fact that in, in the, you know, in the industrialization of the South has occurred, the South seems to be with interstate connected to all the rest of the country, but yet it still remains this uh, wounded uh, place that hasn't really perhaps risen above their original sin. The N-word is dropped consistently there uh, by the main characters, indicating that that sense of racism still permeates deeply every aspect uh, of life in the South, which to me isn't so much about O'Connor's hatred of racism. She actually uh, was known uh, to write a lot of racist comments. It's more about the fact that 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 she understood it was ugly and unre- but it wasn't necessarily this was a comment against racism. It was the fact that these people are in a way old beyond the trappings around them. They are in a way old souls. They are in a way uh, uh, looking for, although they don't realize that they will find salvation, whether they want to or not. And that is sort of like like the the universal monster movies they you can't figure out where where is this taking place because it's it's going between modern day and and like these peasants you know out in somewhere right that's right like but 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 here i think it is these characters that you're going to watch their arc they are in a way non-historical characters they represent um Sinners. They represent ultimate sin, growth. Uh, they represent an, a, a world that needs to be redeemed. And the fact that they're so strange is the, one of the reasons why that you are somehow fascinated by them. The film is, it, it's like, I, I, it seems like an independent film because, you know, the camera sometimes is shaky. And yet you can't really stop looking at what's going on with these people and, and the strange things that they're that that, that they are saying um so it is a uh uh does it what message again obviously uh you know we end up discovering god even when we are denying god and that god is pushing us despite our demands that that, that and, and, and 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 screaming that we hate god and yet we are finding ourselves connected to him no matter what. What happens is what happens with Hazel is that he um, he ends up uh, attracting people to his non-message. And there's another huckster played by Ned Beatty. And you might know Ned Beatty from, <laughs> from, from Network, from Deliverance as well. He was the one, of course, that was attacked in the woods in Deliverance. Um, he also plays uh, uh, one of uh, Luthor's henchmen in the original Superman film. Um, so Ned Beatty is a, uh, used to playing Southerners and he plays a, a, uh, a sort of a, a, a shifty preacher who wants to uh, cash in. Now, what he ends up doing is he gets a homeless man when, um, when Hazel refuses to play ball with him. 
when Hazel refuses to team up with him for a couple of dollars because Hazel wants to be true and he has to be a true human being, what he does is he finds sort of a lookalike for Hazel in some, you know, among some homeless people, dresses him up to look exactly like him, and then has him stand on a car that's somewhat similar to Hazel's Aradakadish and have him basically mouth pretty much the same inanities, but in order to pass the hat around, which Hazel refuses to do. Hazel refuses to take any money. He's just living off of his, uh, off his army pension. Um, when Hazel sees that, that someone has sort of usurped his identity, Hazel um, follows this homeless person who's now driving this car that's also his double and runs him off the road and runs him over. And basically, in his in his dying breath, this this homeless man um, starts confessing his sins. In the last couple of minutes of his life, he confesses his sins to Hazel, who is the one who has killed him. Well, after that occurs, Hazel is able to find some lime from a hardware store, wherever he gets it, and he puts the lime into his eyes and blinds himself. And afterwards, Hazel. Uh, living in this um, boarding house with uh, with his landlady, um, begins to uh, emulate the stigmata. He uh, he 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 wraps uh, barbed wire around his chest, cutting into himself in order for him to bleed every night. He walks on rocks. I mean, similar, of course, to the Gemara we know in Bava Metziah about what Rabbi Zebreb Shimon uh, wanted to do. But this was, again, classic. Uh, you know, this is reliving Galagatha. This is reliving the, you know, Christ's uh, walk to death. You know? and, and this is what the penance that he believes he needs to have for his life, his life. Of, and maybe it's what he did in Vietnam, and maybe it's what he did uh, living with these wanton women and lusting after them. Uh, and, he, you know, he, he, he wants to be blind and suffering. Um, and again, the, uh, the landlady uh, becomes enamored of him. You know, she, he's no longer just somebody who pays rent and he doesn't have any money, but she uh, is very... Um, uh, kind of, she feels very close to him. And although she's probably about 25 or 30 years older, uh, she says the only way he can stay is if, is if he decides to marry her. When he hears this, is once again, he's being drawn and being uh, like a magnet for sensuality. Hazel decides to go out into a store, uh, to a rainstorm, and he disappears for a number of days. She calls the police. And in a, and, and basically in a scene taken directly again from the novel, uh, the police find him, you know, under some sort of trestle in 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 the town. Um, you know, he probably hasn't eaten, and he he's blind. He's just um, perhaps only you know barely alive. Uh, the police bring him back to the boarding house. Now, in the book, it's clear that that the policemen in the back of the car uh, they were so angry at him for some reason, just like Jesus uh, on uh, carrying the cross, they pelted him and, and basically, basically break his neck or kill him. In the, in, in the, in the film, it isn't clear that he's dead, but the police bring him into uh, the woman, the, the woman's boarding house. They place him on a bed 
And in the last scene, you can see his hands are uh, stretched out like Jesus on the cross. And she is talking to him as if he's alive. And of course, in the book, the very famous last lines of the book is she saw the gleam of life in his eyes, once again, indicating the, the idea of the resurrection. Um, the, the movie doesn't zero in on his eyes. It just, just, you just hear the landlady uh, speaking to him and saying, yes, whatever you want, you'll be wherever you can live, wherever you want. Um, and that's the, the way the film ends. Now, again, I probably I spoiled it for people if they're interested in it. But again, here is a film that takes the South and turns it into the gospel, but turns it into a very Catholic version of the gospels and a version that I think it's like that, again, you are familiar with, with Catholic theology. What I'm telling you is probably it doesn't you I'm sure you've heard it and you know about it. What's interesting, again, is that people believe that O'Connor is important because she believed that it, we shouldn't be swamped in America by the Protestantism that seems to go so walk so hand in hand with the American ideal, um, the idea of, 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 of materialism, of manifest destiny, of all the things that Protestantism has in terms of sort of like, you know, streamlining Christianity for the for, for people you know, here in America, this is really a much more restrictive, demanding um, version of of what a relationship to God is. And, you know, it, it, it's therefore very interesting that Houston, you know, he makes this film. Houston was an atheist. He didn't believe in God. And he says, you know, I made this film. And he says, I was, this film was a struggle for him because in a way he's sort of like, was thinking, okay, does this film indicate that really there is a God power behind everything or not? And I think, you know, I think in that way, the film is probably worth uh, investigating as a, as a way to um, tap into what might be, I wouldn't call it radical Christianity. I would call it more, you know, the, the original Christianity that, that spread around the world and how, as you say, it takes, takes root in the South. The, the, a couple of, uh, of, of quibbles about the film, the music by Alex North uh, is really, to me, uh, terrible. He, you know, he basically takes um, themes like the Tennessee Waltz and other themes uh, and, and, and also a number of uh, themes that are completely comedic and, and, and really give the film a sort of a television uh, type of feel to it that it doesn't deserve. Um, I think that the, the the soundtrack is all wrong, really. Uh, and I'm, 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 um, you know, Houston uh, made the money. He made the film on very little money. Um, you know, he didn't use actors that were really uh, such big name actors. Although, again, some of the again the powerful performances. Um, uh, and, and I'm not sure exactly what was going on in terms of the rights for the film. Um, I, I just want to say the last thing here is that. I believe the film is interesting, but it's ultimately a failure because I believe what a filmmaker should do is distill the essence of the idea of the source material, but into very much cinematic terms, even if it means altering the the ending, even if it means uh, conflating characters, a film isn't meant to follow lockstep what the book was about. It's impossible. The interior aspect of 
of, 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 a, of a book means that it's meant to ruminate about and come back to hours and hours. A two-hour film that this is can't possibly do that. So when you're just checking the boxes of what occurred, you're really setting yourself up for a challenge that's unnecessary. <laughs> Another film that deals with sort of preachers in the South, and we've talked about it, Elmer Gantry, um, wisely zeroed in on only one section of the book, despite it's a two and a half hour film, a much superior, again, if I, Elmer Gantry is a much superior film to Wise Blood, but Wise Blood tells you really more about the nature of Catholic or original Christianity than Elmer Gantry does. Um, and, you know, the characters are not, you know, you know, Burt Lancaster is never going to be uh, uh, confused with Brad DeRiff. Uh, you know, Brad DeRiff plays it totally over the top with insanity, whereas Burt Lancaster is always in somewhat knowing what sort of scoundrel he really is. But again, Gantry and other films, uh, again, Gone with the Wind is also an example. And that's the reason why Gone with the Wind uh, was so long. It was such a long film because the, the book was so loved that the, the, it was sort of expected that there would be uh, the, the film would do what the book had done. But again, I, I, I never read Mary Mitchell's uh, original, but I do know liberties were taken, but those liberties, Yitzchak, are necessary. I, I think you lose what a, you, you, a book's plays are supposed to inspire filmmakers who have a different laboratory to deal with than the laboratory of an author of using certain metaphors and certain terms and certain words of expression that take you to a certain place to mull over in your head. Whereas the, you know, there, there's, there's the gifts that are given to a, a filmmaker and the ones that he supposedly can sharpen with his understanding of how to, uh, to, to, to use a missing scene, to be able to, to, to use blackouts, to be able to use close-ups, to be able to use crane shots, to be able to give you POV or even split screens or other things like that. Those are, those are gifts that, that a filmmaker is given and really should, should know how to use to distill what the idea or at least how the idea of this book affects you. I think Houston is a very bright man, but I think his he is operating here uh, under the the heavy weight of what everybody assumed Flannery O'Connor meant. And it's almost like, well, you know, <laughs> the only thing he could do is kowtow to uh, her vision and basically follow it by the numbers. I think what he ends up doing is really short selling what he could do. He could have really, um, you know, still explored this character, but really not necessarily had all these other aspects, um, you know, and using, using ex lifting almost word for word dialogue. Um, you know, I, I would say, again, it, it's probably hard to um, compare, but I, I, I know you're familiar with David Lean. And David Lean, of course, uh, was probably one of the greatest of the British filmmakers, definitely in terms of the post-war era. Uh, he's, of course, made Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago. But, you know, again, Zhivago is an example of a film based on a book. Uh, but I would talk about Lean's uh, Great Expectations. That is from Dickens, 
uh, and how he, you know, his vision of how that that worked. Uh, again, more infamously, his Oliver Twist, um, and you know, the Fagan character and other things. So, you know, David Lean, I think, had it right. I, I think this film, maybe, you know, Houston's age had something to do with it. Um, but I think the, I think the film suffers because of it. It would have been much better had there been here's O'Connor's vision, and here is the film take uh, of that. Otherwise, just read the book. You know what I'm saying? You know, just read the book. I'll get uh, two stranger uh, southern films. I don't think we ever put together before, but I think it's uh, you know. If you want to get your if you want to get your south dose, pick your poison over there. And I guess I should say, um, <laughs> y'all come back now and just, you know, watch, watch yourself on the way out. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 